So this evening's reading is from Galatians 5, verses 1 to 12, and can be found on 1172. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will no longer value you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has, has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Thank you, Father in heaven that we are your people, we are your kingdom. And we pray, Father, as we think on what that means for us today, that you would give us great confidence in what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We ask in his name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a recent trend out there of how not to guides, how not to books. Um, So there's this book, uh, called How Not to Diet. Don't know if you've come across that. It's about diet. Um, I started reading that actually off the back of this. It's quite interesting. Uh, How Not to Die, uh, or there's this one, How Not to Be Wrong, maybe worth a read, or my personal favorite, How Not to Get Eaten by Ewoks and other galactical survival skills. See, um, there's a lot of these books out there, How Not to books. And um, The idea, I guess, of the title, if we could just blank the slide, that'd be great. Um, The idea of the title is that um, it kind of draws you in. So you think to yourself, I don't want to die, or I don't want to get eaten by an Ewok, so I better get this book and read it for myself. Well, there's something of that in this passage this evening. Because here, Paul shows us how not to do something. Uh, What is that something? Well, it comes up in verse 4. He says at the end of verse 4, you have fallen away from grace. See, that's what Paul is warning us about tonight, falling away from grace, uh, falling away from being a Christian, losing all the benefits of Jesus Christ. If this was a book, I know it'd be a short one, but if this was a book, it would be called How Not to Fall Away. Now, I know as soon as I say those two words, falling away, there'd be some of us who speculate and some of us who will be spooked. There'll be your speculators out there. You'll know who you are because you'll be thinking of all the possible conundrums to ask me in the Q&A afterwards. What about once saved, always saved? Is it possible to even fall away? But there'll be others of us who get spooked 
you start to think, well, what about me? I thought that Jesus would keep me going. What if I don't carry on? But if we come away from this passage tonight just being speculators or being spooked, we've not understood it. Because the point of any how-not-to guide is not just to say, here's a problem, or here's a problem, now live with it, but to show us that actually we can do something about it, to understand the danger so that we live rightly as a response. And that's what I want us to do tonight. As we look at this danger, that we don't go anywhere near it, but we stay in, on the right track. Uh, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see two ways to fall. First of all, trusting in empty gestures. Secondly, trusting in empty guides. And then we're going to finish with one way to stand. So that first point, trusting in empty gestures. Now, you might expect a talk like this on falling away to start with the big sins we might fall into or some of the temptations out there in the world we might be lured by. But actually, the danger Paul speaks about here is very surprising, isn't it? Because the danger comes up in verse 2. Mark my words, he says. I, Paul, tell you that if you let, uh, I tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Do you spot the danger? It's circumcision. Now, this is the moment where everyone starts to get a bit uncomfortable in their seats. That's okay, because we're going to talk a little bit about circumcision. Because we've got to ask the question, what is it, and why is it so dangerous? Let me just say what it's not before we go on to what it is. Paul, for the sake of um, clarity here, is not talking about the medical procedure where the foreskin is removed. He's not speaking of some sort of concerned doctor, like kind of anti-circumcision uh, in hospital. He's not warning against circumcision per se. He's circumcised. And Timothy's circumcised in um, Acts chapter 16 to, 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 so he can go to a Jewish audience and be heard. So if it's not the medical procedure, if it's not the, the process, what is it, Paul? Well, the clue comes up in verse 3. Paul says this, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. See, circumcision is all to do with the law. See, circumcision was the kind of um, tip of the iceberg. It, it kind of showed that actually their hearts are drifting away from what Jesus has done and on to something else. It wasn't that Jesus was quite enough. They needed the law. They needed this mark as well. Now, it seemed like the Galatians had kind of got so far down that track. In chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says that they're observing special days and months and seasons and years. And um, it's like this. They're, they're part of the way down this kind of seesaw of moving from Gentile into Jewish, uh, to being part of the Jewish people. And so they've started off observing these days and seasons, but now, as soon as they accept circumcision, they're going to go into this new place where they're going to have to keep the whole law, Paul says. You see the point? Jesus is not enough. You need to keep the whole law. Now, why is that such a problem? Well, as we've been seeing, to keep the whole law will condemn us. Uh, here's a, another 
slide to confuse us. Um, this uh, law, uh, we, see, we saw this over the last couple of weeks. The law is like a mirror. It condemns us. It shows us what we're really like to point us to the need for Christ, our Redeemer. But the thing is, the Galatians are going back in time. They're going through circumcision back to the law. And if they do that, they will find that they're just condemned and they don't get this wonderful redemption of Christ. See, here's the big danger. Here's the one thing Paul wants them to take away. Don't accept circumcision. Because by doing so, you'll go back to the law. And going back to the law will just expose your heart. Now, how on earth does that affect us? Because I'm guessing, we don't have to put hands up, none of us are rushing out to be circumcised. It doesn't seem that attractive. But actually, there is the subtle danger that they face still around today. Yes, we're not tempted by circumcision, but we are tempted, aren't we, to look for that extra assurance that we're God's people. That's what circumcision offered. It offered that kind of mark physically that actually you're part of this movement, you're part of these Jewish people, and because of that, you're potentially more special. A friend of mine um, became a Christian from a Chinese background, and it was such an encouraging time. Uh, She came here from China, she heard the gospel, she believed, and we went to her baptism. It was a wonderful occasion. The whole service was translated to us, and it was just such a joy. But a little while later, someone came alongside her and said, do you know what? You need a baptism of the Spirit. You need a second baptism. Okay, your first baptism is pretty good. It won't get you out of hell, but it won't get you into heaven. And as you can imagine, it did her huge damage. Because understandably, her focus came off the Lord Jesus and on to searching out this experience. See, notice how subtle it is. Circumcision was a good thing. It was a sign from God. It's in the Bible. You can point to it in black and white. Experiencing God's love personally is a good thing. But the moment we put that in place of Jesus alone, the moment we make that a prerequisite to finding salvation in him, well, then we're in huge danger. Even very good things, like the sign of baptism, or the Lord's Supper, or having a quiet time where we read our Bible every day, or going to church, excellent things. I'm not downplaying them for one second. But they're not the means by which we are saved. It is through Jesus and Him alone. How do we know we're in danger? Or how do we know we might drift into this sort of thinking. Well, I wonder what you say to yourself when you miss your daily Bible reading. Maybe it's nothing, but maybe, like me, you're thinking, what a terrible Christian I am. How can I call myself a minister when I've just not read my Bible today and not even remembered to do so? See, as soon as we start condemning ourselves, it shows us what we think makes us a Christian, what makes us saved. And is it Jesus, or is it Jesus plus a regular quiet time? Or what do you say on the flip side when you do pretty well? Uh, When you've helped old ladies across the road for a week, or when you've read your Bible every day, or when you've gone to church 
isn't there the danger that we start saying to ourselves, well, look at me, I'm the business, I'm, you know, I've helped an old lady across the road. Well, again, if we go down that track, well, actually, we're pointing to ourselves as the means of becoming saved by God. How not to fall part one? Don't trust in empty gestures for salvation. But there's a second danger here. It is trusting in empty guides. See, verse 7, Paul's focus moves from the believers onto their teachers. Um, We said this over previous weeks, but it's never kind of come out explicitly until now. But in the Galatian church, there are visitors who are speaking to the believers there and saying to them that they need to be circumcised to be saved. Uh, Here's an example of that in, um, not that, uh, Acts chapter 15, where we read this, that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's their message. And Paul describes the danger like being in a race and having someone take you out. Have a look at verse 7. He says, you will run in a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? I wonder if anyone saw that moment on the Tour de France. It just flashed up. If you were alert, you would have seen it last summer, uh, where the lady um, held up a sign. I believe, maybe a French speaker can tell me here, uh, go someone. Um, uh, I think it was a sign about her grandmother. Is that right? I'm looking over. Sorry. <laughs> Won't embarrass you. Um, but it was really quite bad. I think it was a total mistake because she held out the sign and she hit that rider on the left. And if you look down to the bottom right-hand corner, the whole of this kind of um, whatever you call it group uh, had a huge pile-up. I was going to show you the video, but I thought if we're pretty squeamish, it's not good for us. But that's the kind of picture, isn't it? Paul says you were doing so well, but now there's a lady with a sign for a grandmother come in and trip in you up, or not, these visitors to the Galatians. And the thing is, they seem very impressive. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, Paul describes them as zealous to win you over. They would have been great at the flattery. They would have given these Galatians a sense of importance, saying to them, look, guys, you're nobodies, but now you can become circumcised, and you can be part of this huge movement that started back at Moses, and you could be one of us. It's like being invited to the special dining club. But as impressive as they sound, Paul shows that they're empty. Uh, Verse 8, he speaks about their true origin. He says, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. They're not from God. They're not leading people to know God better. Verse 9, he speaks about their optics. A little yeast works out through the whole batch of dough. They may look very successful. They may be on the way to the next megachurch, but Paul reminds us that yeast is pretty successful as well. It goes through a whole loaf of bread, but there's still nothing to it, but apart from a load of hot air. And verse 10, he talks about the outcome. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who has thrown you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. See, they forget that they're answerable to God. 
It's his world, his methods, his people. And Paul's words here are very similar to Jesus when he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. See, see what Paul's saying here. The danger of falling doesn't just come from what our attitude is to the law. It doesn't just come from our practice, but it comes from the people we listen to. See, there is a danger of trusting in false gestures, but there's also a danger in trusting in false guides. And like the danger of circumcision, this is very subtle, isn't it? Because false teachers don't come with red eyes and horns in their head. I'm sorry to say that. They don't. And they don't come with a little badge saying, hi, I'm John. I'm a false teacher. Pleased to meet you. If they did, it would be so much easier, wouldn't it? But actually, they have the Bible in their hands. They have a sharp mind. They have an engaging manner. But actually, Paul says that truly, it's empty. Now, I get that this is very awkward. I said last week, didn't I, about how we hate causing a fuss. And this is the place we hate causing a fuss most in. All of us, sorry, not all of us, but most of us, I guess, are pretty agreeable. You're pretty nice people. I don't run into people very often. There's not really an appetite for conflict, I guess, in a lot of us. But yet, that doesn't take away from the very real danger that actually some people will take us away from Jesus and what he's done. That doesn't mean we kind of go out militant, pointing the accusation of false teacher at every moment. It does mean that we try and be charitable to people, we try and understand what they're saying, Uh, We try and give them a good hearing. But it does mean that there is a danger. It does matter who we listen to, me included. It does matter who we're subscribing to on the YouTube. It does matter who we follow on Instagram. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, beware of uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, what do we do about these things? I mean, is it safe to listen to anyone? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he, about these visitors. And actually, we can use those things, he says, as a bit of a litmus test for the people we listen to. So going back to their origin in verse 8, he says that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A great question to ask of people, and this is me included, is who are they telling me about? Are they telling me about themselves or their movement Or are they telling me about God? Are they encouraging me to know Jesus better? Second litmus test. Consider their optics, verse 9. I don't know about you, but it is so easy, isn't it, to let your guard down as soon as you see the big numbers. We're very tempted to be swung by the people who seem influential. But actually, yeast goes through a loaf of bread. It may look very successful, but it doesn't mean it's right or true. Or number three, consider their outcome. Remember, it is God who judges the methods, not us. And we've got to ask, is this person teaching God's way as God desires? Two ways to fall. Look into empty gestures, look into ourselves, look into religious signs. And secondly, look into empty guides, listening to the wrong voice. 
well, that could sound very depressing. And maybe we think to ourselves, is it even safe to go out? I might as well just stay at home and lock the door. Uh, but then even you'll be in trouble then as well because your heart is with you. So what do we do instead? Well, thirdly and finally, there is one way to stand. See, these verses aren't just here to spook us. They're not here to go, there's danger outside, stay here, be safe. They're there to encourage us. See, look at what Paul says in verse eight, uh, verse 5. rather. He gives a contrast. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. And now, you'll remember the word righteousness. We heard it a couple of weeks ago. Remember, Connor come up, came up as a judge, a very scary judge. I still have flashbacks about it. And he stood there, and he made a verdict on uh, someone else, Ellie, I think it was. And remember that to be found righteous is to be found right by the court, to be declared right. And the righteousness he speaks of here is that courtroom language, to be declared right by God. Now, when he talks about hope there, he's not saying we're hoping for the righteousness, whether it'll come or not, we don't know. He's already said that we are already righteous. We're already included declared right, given that verdict, the moment we trust in the Lord Jesus. 5 verse 1, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are free from sin. We are free from the shadow of death. But we are still waiting for the day where that will be seen once and for all, where the Lord Jesus will look on us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know if you've um, ever graduated or ever won an award or got a swimming badge or something like that, but there's often a time, isn't there, where you get told, do you still get swimming badges? Is that a thing? Um, where you get told, um, you've got this award, you've, you've graduated, you've got, the, um, you've got the, um, the, the desired pass mark, or you've, you've swam 20 meters. But then there's a stage between that and the moment you get given the award. There was about three or four months between me getting my exam results and then me going up on a stage dressed in all sorts of things to be given my degree. And it's a bit like that here. You've already passed, not because of you, but because of what the Lord Jesus has achieved in his death. And now we're awaiting that award ceremony, not to bring awards on us, of course, but to bring awards on the Lord Jesus. See, we have that righteousness, and now our job, Paul says, is to eagerly await for it. When he says eagerly await, it's worth saying, isn't it, that there's two types of waiting. There's what I call passive waiting. There's a sort of waiting you do at the bus stop. You know how it is, you, you wait for a bus, and in about two seconds you're bored, the phone comes out, and you start scrolling. There's that sort of waiting. And sometimes we can think of the Christian life a bit like that. If I just say the prayer on a summer camp, then my job now is really just to distract myself, to get the dream house, the dream kids, the dream Labrador, the dream job. But there is a different type of waiting, isn't there? There's an active waiting. This is the sort of waiting I did when I expected my first child, or rather my wife did. And that sort of waiting looks very different. I was 
having an exciting churning in my stomach. So was my wife. There was the thought that in a moment of months, my life would change forever. I make lifestyle preparations. I pack an overnight bag. I stuffed it full of McCoy's crisps and Mars bars, ready for that moment we had to go to the hospital. You start going closer to the home. You keep your mobile on. You don't have a drink in case you have to drive to the hospital. See, they're both waiting, the bus stop and the baby, but one looks very different. And the type of waiting Paul talks about here is that second type, the active waiting. The baby's on its way, and you're just waiting for the moment for it to be revealed. And we as Christians, because the Lord Jesus has died, and remember, as he died, he said those words, it is finished. And we now await that moment where that's going to be seen by all. And so as we wrap up uh, this passage, it's not just about avoiding the danger. That is part of what we're to do. If we are tempted to trust in any external sign or any extra thing to get right with God, well, Paul warns us that that can sever us from Christ. Of course, if we're listening to teachers that we know are not good for us, if we're listening to that YouTube video and we're more enamored by the speaker rather than Jesus, well, there are lessons here to turn and can be careful who we listen to. But for the vast majority of us who trust in the Lord Jesus, actually, there is this encouragement that because Jesus has died, because he is raised, we have everything already. And our job now is eagerly awaiting that day. The question of us, myself, is am as eager as I should be about what Jesus is bringing in? And that's a great question to reflect on with others as we finish. Let's pray and then we'll take questions. Father, thank you so much uh, that we have been forgiven, saved, and set free in the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would lead us not into the temptation of trusting ourselves or others, but, Father, help us to, as Paul says, eagerly await that righteousness that is to be revealed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Time for our Q&A. And um, as always, thank you for sending in those questions. Um, thank you. And um, we'll do our best. I say we. Rob will do his best to um, No, feel free to chip in. <laughs> Um, definitely not on the first one. So we're going to start with, um, someone just put verse 12 and three question marks. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't notice. <laughs> uh, so verse 12, um, as for those uh, agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Um, yes, three question marks. I guess, what is Paul talking about? Let's not go into detail. But he's basically saying... Um, I wish they'd basically move the knife upwards and go the whole hog. So that's basically what he's saying. Um, a lot of people get kind of disturbed by that. He's not kind of giving advice here. I don't think anyone did it off the back of it. A lot of people get disturbed. But then I, I do think you've got to realize the strength of feeling here. Paul's saying if they're telling people to do this, they, it's as good as... Um, so, yeah. And I think back to my Chinese friend and the person who said that to her and just what it did to her. And I can understand his strength of feeling. I guess it's kind of similar to you, you referenced, is it Mark? 
when Jesus says it would be better if someone was to exactly yeah yeah around the neck and I guess it's the kind of similar vibe yeah leading people astray is that yeah it's not that we should think oh that's a good option the millstone it's stop what you're doing yeah 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 Yeah. that's it just getting across the seriousness of thank you yes okay um most popular question for today was if false teachers often look the part what is the key to being able to discern good teachers from false ones so I guess getting really practical yeah, thank you for um, following up on that. So, um, yeah, it's, I always go back to, it's amazing how much the Sermon on the Mount just is really very helpful on this because um, Jesus says in verse 15 of chapter 7 of Matthew, uh, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward they are ferocious wolves. And this is what he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And he goes on to say, uh, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So, yeah, you can't see people's hearts. You can't have an x-ray machine that kind of tells you false teacher or not. But Jesus is so helpful, isn't he? Because he says it's by their fruit you will know them. Uh, And that's why I think Paul gets the Galatians to think twice about what's their origin. Um, You know, asking things like, is this person telling me about Jesus? Are they getting me to love Jesus more or love them more? Um, are they getting me to love Jesus more or their kind of movement more? Um, also reminded, I find that yeast comment so helpful because I don't know about you, but I, you know, you want to be part of something successful, don't you? You don't want to be a part of something that fails. And it's so easy to be drawn to the next big thing. So again, asking myself, am I being drawn by the success or is, it, is there actually the gospel of the heart? And third and finally, just remembering that the Lord is um, the one everyone's answerable to. Not to scare us, but to remember that actually um, this person in front of me is not the big deal. God's the big deal. Mm. Yeah. Was, do you want me to get more practical than that? Um, no, I think that's great. So, I mean, yeah, just to say, I mean, so if I'm, you know, I love YouTube. I love it too much. I've <laughs> spent too much time. Um, it's just so bad, isn't it, with the kind of algorithms. It just knows you inside out. Um, so, uh, once you watch one of these kind of videos about preachers, lots come up. And it's amazing, all of them have got a Bible in front of them, all have got on, on, one on the lectern. So, it's not just have they got a Bible, and actually, are they, are they speak, teaching from it? And you've got to ask this question about me as well. And are they driving me to the Lord Jesus? That's really helpful. Um, next question Do you think our modern view of Christmas has become in itself a false teaching? Oh, I like that. What a surprising question. (laughs) I have no idea. Um, So, yeah, it depends what you mean by Christmas. Um, Is the news that Jesus was incarnate, as in became flesh, and came to this earth to save people from their sins, um, which is what I like to teach at Christmas. Um, No, that's not false. That's true. (laughs) Um, Do we mean um, the materialism, the side of it, probably, um, I'm not sure if false teachers is the most helpful way of describing that, but yeah, I guess that's not what Christmas is about. Although, as I was thinking about this, I thought the kind of doctrine of Santa Claus, and I'm not bashing Santa here, um, you know, let's not go there, but, um, but the kind of idea that actually, if you do right, Santa will reward you. You get a new PlayStation if you help old ladies over the road and that sort of thing. Um, if you do wrong, actually, you won't get rewarded. It's actually terrible, isn't it? It's a terrible thing to tell children. It may motivate them, uh, but, um, but it's not the gospel. 
And so, yeah, I don't know if this is what you were getting at with the question, but yes, that is not the gospel. Um, Jesus is better than Santa. Mm. That's a good one to remember in the Relaxed Christmas. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this one is a very interesting one. Um, what if we are accidental false teachers? So I guess it's the idea of trying to speak truth, but we get it wrong. Maybe we don't know enough. Maybe, yeah, we just say something. Oh, I see. Yeah, I was going to say... Unless you think it's something different, because I didn't write this question. No, thank you. I mean, if you, if you are, stop. That'd be great. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but I guess I guess that's not what we mean. I mean, yeah, is it a kind of if I slip up here, say the wrong thing, you know, am I going to send some away? I don't think we have to go really paranoid on this. No, I've said some stuff over the years, not intentionally, but I think, oh, Rob, what were you thinking? Um, what have you said? So don't stop talking about Jesus. Don't stop trying to explain the Bible. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what else to say on that? I think this is a completely different kettle of fish. This, these are people who, have, who, who should know better, who have gone into a church purposely to, uh, to win converts to their cause. So this isn't kind of you explaining to someone the Bible at college and accidentally getting you know, the description of Jesus wrong. This is people who should know better. That's why Paul calls them out so publicly, I think. Um, in this way. So, yeah. So don't worry too much. Teach the Bible. Tell your friends. Um, if you're an out-and-out false teacher who's coming to wreck other people's faith, stop doing that. That'd be great. Brilliant. Do you want one or two? Yeah, yeah, great. That's two more? Yeah, cool. I may live to regret that. Um, <laughs> the, the, one, the one you liked is coming up. So. Um, in, the context, in this context, what does Paul mean by the offense of the cross mentioned in verse 11? Yeah, thank you. So verse 11, Paul, it sounds like the false teachers are basically saying, look, come on guys, get circumcised. Even Paul is preaching circumcision. And Paul says, that's why I think he says in verse 11, if I was still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Um, I said a little bit about this last week, I think. I thought the offense of the cross meant um, it's kind of gruesome, it's kind of bloody, um, it's kind of offensive to think about. But actually, the more I've looked at Galatians, and I've only seen this the last time I've looked at it, um, actually, I think it's not about that at all. It's about what the cross says about our pride. So the cross does two jobs. It doesn't just tell us how to be saved. It tells us why we need to be saved as well. As you look at Jesus on the cross, yes, you're encouraged to, to, by the fact that he saved you, but you also are reminded what it took for him to save you. And so I think the offense of the cross is that message. When we say to people, you cannot do it by yourself, actually all your best achievements uh, are nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus has done, I'm guessing that's pretty offensive. And uh, as Paul preaches that, he's pointing out that that's why he's persecuted. Grand. We'll finish on this one. Um, oh, right. I was a, got away with it, no? No, we'll finish on this one. Um, <laughs> so when eagerly awaiting... Any tips on the balance between focusing on heaven versus focusing on what needs to be done in the world around us? Any tips? Um, yeah. So if we're, you know, fix your eyes on things above and the hope of salvation, but also we have to live in the world around us and, and we want to make sure that we're doing that in the best way, what's, I guess what's the balance between where we're focusing? Yeah. I mean, uh, what to say? I think... 
they're not quite either or in that kind of the way question, the question might suggest. So um, it's not that we kind of, uh, by focusing on this world, we're kind of not doing heavenly things. And by doing heavenly things, we're not doing this world things. Uh, so as you rightly say in Colossians chapter 3, this is really helpful, he says, set your minds on things above. And by that, he doesn't mean kind of, you know, become a monk, kind of withdraw yourself from this world. But he means as you go about your day-to-day business, be having your mind set on things above. So, and he gives very kind of down-to-earth, practical things, uh, like being clothed with compassion, gentleness. Um, so actually, they're very kind of earthly things, I guess. Um, but I do think there's a place for keeping on reminding yourself of where this creation is going. Um, so the Galatians got into trouble, didn't they, when they went back to the law and forgot where it pointed. And actually, there's a lesson here that we are in this world and forget where it's heading. And um, I think we do have to work hard at remind ourselves that. Uh, personally, uh, I find coming to church each week a massive help for that because I go, oh, yes, yes, there's a bigger thing uh, around um, personal Bible reading. You're not saved by it, but it is helpful. Um, what else to say? Yeah, I think just also, just to, someone said this to me, and I found it quite helpful, but I'm not quite sure how to put it. We need to learn to daydream about what's coming. So that kind of eager expectation, uh, that world to come, um, I don't know, when you're going on a holiday, I start to daydream. I love that drive to the airport. I love the kind of packing. I love the kind of getting there on the beach and the first cocktail and all that sort of stuff. And I guess it's that sort of process about this new creation. The righteousness is ours. We don't have to fear it. It is good. And can I spend my time daydreaming about how good that's going to be? Brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Nothing to add on that. Really helpful. Thank you.